0: thing I'm going to ask you to do Mm -hmm. is can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us what you've done so far and what you're doing now please.
1: Thanks, Philip. Uh, So my name is Shravani, and I am um, somebody from India who has done her urban planning as her undergraduate degree. Um, And I did my master's in um, urban transport. So basically, I'm an urban transport planner. And at the moment, I'm working as a PhD uh, student, a full-time PhD student in Warwick Manufacturing Group, University of Warwick, and I'm again looking at um, travel behaviour, transport choices, well-being, and uh, sustainable policy-making. So before that, I was also working for a while. Um, in an organization called WRI World Resources Institute, where I was looking at electric mobility projects in India and a lot of like on ground projects and also in the policy aspects. And after that, I worked for an organization called Climate Group, where I was um, the zero emission vehicles um, advocacy and engagement manager for um, COP26. So that was my role so far.
0: Okay, so that gives us a picture of, of, I don't know how you've crammed all that much in, but there you go. Do you want to tell us where you've got, because you've only, you've only, this is your first year on your PhD, isn't it?
1: Yes, this is my first year. So at the moment, what I'm looking at is, so the relationship between people's transport choices that they make and their impact on their overall well-being. So the idea is that you know um, a lot of countries have now actually included well-being as one of the indicators to measure progress beyond GDP. And uh, countries like UK, US, um, Australia, Japan have also included all these kind of factors. Um, so UK did it in 2010, and after that, you know, they, um, the Office of National Statistics measures like three, four indicators. Um, so those indicators are to measure the overall well-being status, personal well-being of a person. So um, my kind of um, study wants to research and find out if we include transport as an indicator, will the well-being um, score change in any way? So that's one part of it. after that why i want to achieve is that because now technology is changing so quickly and it is kind of like difficult for the government and the infrastructure providers to kind of keep up with the pace that they are changing like in terms of infrastructure policy or incentives etc so um my idea is that how do people um, you know, make different kinds of choices in the future with the coming of new technologies, keeping in mind their well-being as well, and giving a systematic toolkit for the uh, policy makers to plan it accordingly in terms of priority. So what do people actually really want? So that's the broad vision of it. So, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah, that's, uh, that sounds really interesting. Um, so the reason that we're in- interviewing you for Kafkan, of course, Kof- CovCAN is about climate change. It's a Coventry Climate Action Network. I mean, how do you think your what you do and what you study has what's the relationship between that and the climate change just generally?
1: Mm-hmm. So overall, because um, I was working as an urban and transport planner, so when it was urban planning, we get to know a lot about how the city functions, basically, right? So it has to do with um, environment, governance, and transport being one of the factors. And when I was working with the transport um, planning um, aspects, like as a transport planner, in my master's, or say in my job experiences, we always wanted to focus on Uh, sustainable transport. In a way, um, it is leading to reduction of carbon emissions. So now electric mobility is fairly a new term where everybody's focusing on it. But before that, I was working a lot in public sector um, fleets, like for example, uh, public transport and buses, and how to move people from, you know, taking their own personal vehicles, cars, to a more sustainable transport like buses. And also I focused on a lot on active mobility, which is walking and cycling. I was also partly, um, for a period of time, the bicycle counselor of my ward, which meant I worked locally with the people to understand what would help them to cycle more often, and then based on their needs, also have a talk with the government to make basic infrastructural needs. So that was one. And the fairly recent one was my role towards COP26, where it was a lot of like research-based advocacy on to give the uh, private and the public sector um, bodies a fair good amount of, you know, um, achievable targets as to if you make a commitment, then you will be able to have a roadmap. So when the government and the fleet operators does that, it's like a ripple effect that most of the manufacturers are forced to make more cleaner vehicles or people are forced to, you know, use more cleaner transport. So in a way, that was my effort towards reducing the carbon emissions or say cleaner mobility. So overall sustainable transport.
0: And I think you've done something about um, studying people's travel behaviour and uh, something on behaviour change. I mean, as far as I am aware anyway, what I think is that in order to achieve uh, a reduction in carbon emissions, every individual and every business and every organisation needs to to do things differently and that's that's behavior change now talking about individual people's lives you know to get them to change their behavior is a is is a problem isn't it so what have you done regarding studying people's travel behavior and and working on behavior change right
1: So uh, it goes a long way back, actually, when I was in my uh, undergraduation. So I did my thesis on understanding the role of aggregated cabs on urban mobility, like, for example, Uber and Ola, all these kind of cabs. So that time in India, 2016, um, it was a fairly new concept, like shared vehicles, you know, and not many people wanted to use it or the data was also not very clear because it was just there and the competition was really high. So my attempt was to understand why do people make all those choices? And if by the coming of all these aggregated cabs have reduced the ridership in the public transport um, and then taken away with these new technologies. So I I did a lot of like on ground surveys as well and asked people like, why do you actually use these public transport? And why do you actually, you know, want to move to a newer one. So it seems like the travel distance is one of the factors why people would choose um, any of the modes. So if it is a longer distance and the cost is cheaper, then probably they will use the public transport. But however, if it is a shorter distance and then say it's round the clock availability. So public transport works only like from a certain time to certain time. But if I'm coming from an airport, I have a lot of luggage. So door to door connectivity and all those kind of things also made a difference. So that was one. And then um, after that, it uh, I did my master's. And then uh, my dissertation was again on understanding the impact of uh, acquiring travel information from various modes on decision of their travel behavior. So there I found out that um, Yes, access to information is everything, like if you have a seat availability, what is the weather going to be like, or if there is a parking slot, you know, there's all kinds of information available. However, um, how do people acquire those uh, travel information is varied from social demographic aspects as well. So like, for example, the elderly group do have smartphones, but not necessarily they use all these apps to, you know, uh, see the travel information, they would rather acquire information from the radio or the TV. And because now, uh, the information is also not that legitimate or user friendly, that they are kind of in a stage that Oh, I don't want to learn that I would just go to the station and book it. Um, Sometimes, Um, Door to door connectivity or network coverage is also one of the factors why people, you know, uh, really don't bother to take take on public transport because you have to walk miles and miles and miles of it. And now I think with the changing times of COVID, there are other factors like, for example, hygiene, safety, if you want to travel or not. And now because we are almost like digital nomads, right, like everybody can work from everywhere. So there's no particularly a need to travel. Talking about that, I was also working um, on understanding, you know, what are how can we use assets that are already existing rather than putting newer aspects like, for example, maximum asset utilization. So it seems like services like Airbnb or all these shared cabs do have like a lot of um, utilization. And now it is kind of easier to achieve because of the kind of demographic changing. Uh, It's more about asset usership rather than asset ownership like for example I wouldn't want to buy a property and then stay there forever or probably you know um want to buy a car and stay there forever because um some studies say that the car only sits in a uh, parking lot for 99 percent of the time uh, so you just don't literally use it right so might as well use a shared cap and something like that so that was um some of the masters one and when I was working I found out um in a more like broader level, like stakeholders, like um, actual citizens, and then there were like um, policymakers and infrastructure providers. So one was, talking from a developing country's perspective, the aspect of, um, say, access to information is not quite there. So for example, there is a really well-written policy, but people have no idea about it, and then no idea how to acquire all those incentives, et cetera. So these are also some of the factors that really, really, you know, um, inspire travel change or behavior. So So the,
0: the policies, you're talking about government policies or local government or what?
1: Uh, So it was government policies, like, for example, um, uh, at that point of time, India was making a lot of state-based policies for electric vehicles. So how many, um, what is the vision overall? What is the roadmap? And then for every mode of transport, what kind of incentives and subsidies are we providing in terms of uh, infrastructure or, say, capital as well? Mm
0: -hmm. But they weren't communicating that to the the consumers then, no?
1: So there were a lot of revision in itself as well, because... It's it's like a team effort right like if the government makes a policy or a decision the people need to be aware and use that um, services in order to reach that target so it seems like for various reasons there was a massive gap in the target so I wouldn't blame the lack of you know information as a whole but there are actually a lot of softer and deeper level problems especially in developing countries like for example if you want like I'm a auto rickshaw driver like uh, from a lower income group and I have no credit history of finance, like I don't even have a bank account. So how do you go and access that um, kind of, you know, um, request for incentives achievement, because they would need some kind of documents to prove that you'll be able to pay back or some kind of return or investment, right? So all those kind of things are kind of missing. So it's a lot of unorganized um, kind of a, um, you know, segment, uh, when it goes to like a deeper, deeper, deeper level of transportation so overall broadly it's great like public transport and electric vehicles but then actual usership is kind of hard to achieve because it comes with a lot of problems
0: what do you think about the uh, difference in travel priorities between developed and developing countries
1: so from a very young age obviously I have you know lived and my entire life in India so I can tell you so many things about the differences about you know how it's changing and also how it is very deeply in in rooted in people you know and no matter how much you do it is still going to be there so basically um, when I was, I'll I'll tell you a short story about how I started this, you know. (laughs) So um, when I was younger, my parents were working in, you know, like the uh, public sector, and they used to come back home cribbing about, oh my God, there's so much traffic, there's so much infrastructure problem and everything, you know. Um, And I belong to the Northeast, which is relatively was a smaller town. But then with time, it grew into a more like bigger business hub. So obviously, the load on infrastructure was higher and higher as people's income capacity increased, they bought more and more cars and the roads were smaller because um, that was in a hilly terrain. So it's a seismic zone, there's no scope of expansion as well because we're close to the river. So at that point I was thinking like, oh my god, how can I, you know, change this? I'm not a superman, I need to do something about it. So that's when I got to understand, okay, um, you know, there is this course I can do and um, if I can can actually use all these skills to, you know, transform uh, these smaller problems, then yeah. I can I can take care of it. So basically, when I thought about that, it was very simple. But when I got into the business, it was so tricky because actually it is a very people centric work like transport planning and urban planning. Although we work with the policymakers, et cetera, uh, my idea was to work in a more bottoms up approach to understand what the people's requirements are. So on the basis of that, what I have always achieved is developed in developing country three Four things are almost the same because it's only human, right? Like we are born in different places um, and different, you know, like ethnicity. That's fine. So, for example, cost, um, trip distance and then travel time, etc., are almost the same for everybody. You know, like um, if it is in a... Um, cheaper rate if it is a convenient mode I would like to travel in a public transport say however there are smaller aspects like for example income in the demographic factors and uh, psychological factors as well when it comes to developing developing countries like for example India is a very aspirational crowd okay so owning two three cars seems like oh my god he's doing really really well in life it's more like a status symbol so for example there are several factors that I'll give you an example of why do people use cars okay because that's the most hot topic um so um now it's because you know there are a lot of societal factors um that yeah everybody's using it i need to use it as well and it's more like a say um symbol status as well then there are also a lot of like psychological factors um that yeah i mean i get a different rate of satisfaction than driving needs and behavior are also there like why do you drive because i like it that's why And then there are different kinds of, say, urban um, sprawl kind of issues as well, like people move out from the city centers to different uh, broader areas. So they would like to take a car instead of like a public transport because it is too far because they can afford it. And there are two other really interesting habits like a habit, which means like a positive kind of a behavior repeatedly becomes a habit. Right. So, for example, I'm taking a car and I have no problems with the parking. Nobody finds me because of congestion fee. So I can do it on and on and on and on. So that becomes a habit for me to take um, the car. And the last one is quite interesting. It's called Commons Dilemma, which means somebody like me, for example, I know everything about transport, (laughs) how good it is, you know, like how um, sustainable it is and everything. I can preach it. But then the thing is, okay, if I take a car today, I won't damage the world because the rest of the world is taking care of it, you know, so it's a conflict between, um, individual car use benefit versus, um, uh, public, you know, like the overall problems, like for example, everybody's using it. And then there'll be a lot of emissions, then yeah, there'll be a problem. But then I think everybody's taking care of it, not me. So that is one. Um, then there are other things as well in terms of, um, fancier aspects like electric vehicles um so there it would be like um something called rate of acceptance okay so um in the first level of acceptance aware people would tell like okay i think electric vehicles are amazing you know i should i should definitely promote it and etc all those kind of things but then the so second level of acceptance is if i ask you like would you like to buy an electric vehicle then probably they will say like a lot of million reasons you know like okay maybe this is good for the world but not for me so it is called a not in my backyard kind of a concept that yeah it is good for the rest of the world but not for me because it is very expensive i don't have charging infrastructure and all those kind of things. And um, there are also like trust issues, factors and also confidence level because ICE vehicles um, like petrol and diesel are more established market. So for example, there is a breakdown in my car. I would know where to go to find a spare part or there's a secondary market available or if I want to resell it. Or I want to refuel it for an interstate, intercity kind of, um, you know, um, trip, then I would know where exactly to go, unlike the electric vehicles. So depending on the mode, et cetera, um, the acceptance levels changes. But there are other softer aspects in terms of developing countries as well, for example, gender and safety. So um, women... Although in Western countries, um, research shows that they travel more because they do a lot of multiple trips, like, for example, dropping a child to the bus stand and then doing groceries on the way, then going to work, etc., coming back. Um, And in the other parts of the world, somehow mobility of women are kind of limited because of cultural factors and, um, you know, they can't really travel a lot. i won't get into more details about it but then um yeah that's one and then safety aspects as well it's not only about the safety in terms of road accidents etc but the mental safety that if i go out on a street at night will i be safe to travel alone and come back so all those kind of things play a massive factor in terms of you know um deciding what to wear and cultural differences as well because here mostly people because of the um, Uh, climatic conditions and the road conditions. Um, The attire of the people are also in a way which is friendly to cycle and stuff, although UK and Europe are more car-centric places. But for example, China, everybody cycles there. But if you say like, okay, you should do it in your hometown, no matter how much I tried, right, because that I was about bicycle counselor in my city itself, and I tried motivating people. But imagine my grandmother wearing a sari in a hilly slope, you know, in 38 degrees temperature, she would just die and faint. Nobody would really care about, you know, sustainable um, transport or climate change. It's about how personally it affects you to what level if it is cost effective cheaper you can get in time i think overall those are the things that you know takes care and it's a pays wise thing